0: Well, good morning, everyone. so good to be with all of you this morning. Um, you know, if, if you've been at Mosaic for any given period of time, you know by now that here at Mosaic Churches, we explore the incredible depths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we recognize that the great redemptive work of Jesus... Has created not only for us a soul rescue, that is, our souls are rescued, or a future redeemed, that is, once we've survived this planet. On the other side, we get to go and be with God in heaven, but it has also produced for us a restored purpose. That is that we are now invited, called uh, into a life where we take the mercy of God that was given to us, the wonder of His rescue, and we get to carry that redemptive story into the world with us, into our circumstances, our relationships, our resources, and we get to live now not for for ourselves on this planet, but for the story of God uh, as part of that story, as ambassadors of Christ, as carriers of the light of life and of freedom. I mean, this, this is what we get called into. So, We've talked a lot here as a church about this incredible privilege of getting out there into the world, whether it be in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, uh, in the the different relational dynamics or circumstances or or, or resource challenges you may have, and and to live out on mission Uh, as part of the devotion to God. It is not about you anymore. It is actually about Him and you are His ambassador. And so in that, many of us uh, are beginning or have have now for a while stepped into a different way of living, a way where we're beginning to ask the question, what does mission look like? What stories am I called to step into? Where is it I must share my faith in declaration? That's verbally share it. Where is it I need to share my faith in demonstration? That's stepping into mission, loving others, right? As we do that more and more, and we are more vulnerable with each other, and we are more engaged in messy stories, have you ever felt like uh, it is fruitless? At times, have you ever pushed into these things, and you're sharing your faith like crazy, or you're demonstrating, or you're pouring yourself out, and and you do, and it just seems like where you pour the gospel in as much as you do, it seems kind of like it's not bearing a whole lot of fruit. Have you ever felt that way? If you haven't, don't worry. It's coming. It's coming soon. Right. I mean, if you're going to engage in a life of mission. I guarantee you at times in that life, as you pour yourself out, you are going to find that the hopeful outcome you have of bringing the gospel to bear on either an individual life or on the group of people or on a story, that in fact the outcome will not turn out the way you thought. It will not go as well as you thought. It will not produce what you thought it would produce. We've been traveling with Paul now for a while, right? And uh, We're in the book of Acts, which is the story of the early New Testament church, and and, and we're sort of unfolding this story and traveling with these guys through the story. Uh, We have watched the gospel of Jesus Christ do exactly what Jesus said it would, right? So on a large scale, on a big picture, it is advancing like a mustard plant would in a garden. You plant a little seed, and that thing is like a weed. It takes over everything, right? So uh, Jesus said the gospel is going to be like a mustard plant, the kingdom of God. It is going to advance through geographical, uh, cultural, language, barriers. It is going to move into the darkness, and it is going to bring life, light, and freedom. And we've certainly seen that happen in the book of Acts, not without its trouble, but it has moved incredibly. We have been traveling most recently with Paul, who encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was very much against this way, the, the, the followers of Jesus, and his entire life was turned upside down in an, in, in an encounter face-to-face with Jesus, and he has been carrying the gospel in incredible ways ever since. We traveled with him through a, his first great church planting journey or missionary journey. We traveled with him through the second one where he went into Macedonia, down uh, through Macedonia to Corinth and then cut back across. We are with Paul now again on his third great church planting journey. He has traveled now uh, on the western way, which kind of travels through Galatia and Phrygia. He's going west again, except instead of going directly west to the Aegean Sea in Macedonia, he kind of diverted south into Asia Minor, which is where he wanted to go on the second journey, but the Spirit of God prevented him, which turned out to be an incredible story. But now he's heading in. To Asia Minor, he's heading back to a city called Ephesus, which he had been at briefly, shared with some of the Jews in the synagogue, and had a great response from them. And they asked him to stay, and he said, no, i got to go, but I'll leave Priscilla and Aquila here. We bumped into Apollos along the way in Ephesus. Now we're with Paul back in Ephesus. We last left the story off, where Paul had bumped into some disciples of John the Baptist, and we saw an extraordinary story unfold there, As we watched the gospel continue to advance and the great promise once again solidified to us that when you know Jesus, you are full of the Spirit of God as a seal of your salvation and as an empowering force to the mission to which you've been called. So is mission hard? Yes. Do you have God residing with you in your life to advance? Yes. So there it is. That's pretty exciting. So now we step back into the text and we follow the story as Paul now heads into Ephesus for real after interacting with the disciples of John. Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 19. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide at the doors, it's page 603. We have been on page 603 for months now. We will be on page 603 for months yet to come. So, I'm just kidding. Uh, So, page 603. Uh, Acts chapter 19 verse 8. So if you're using a smart device or you brought your own Bible, Acts chapter 19 verse 8. So uh, we just finished the story with the disciples of John the Baptist coming to Jesus and being full of the Spirit, and it says this, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading then them about the kingdom of God. So what is the first thing Paul does when he gets to the city of Ephesus? Folks, it's the first thing Paul always does when he gets into a city and there's a synagogue. Okay, Paul had a strategy. He had a plan. He had a proactive view of ministry. He did not walk into a city, go and sit at a coffee shop and say, God... Let me know when you're ready to have me do something crazy, okay? Uh, Show me when it is you want me to go on mission. That is oftentimes our attitude. We walk into life and we go, God, if you want me to do something in my workplace, make it obvious. God's already made it obvious, folks. He already gave us the scriptures. We're already on mission. We don't need any more obvious. Okay, So Paul walks into the city proactively on mission. And what does Paul do when he goes into a city? He has a particular strategy that he follows through on. He finds out if there's a Jewish presence in the city, if there's a synagogue, he goes to that synagogue, and he preaches the gospel to the synagogue first. Why does Paul always go to a synagogue first or to the Jewish people first in a city? We've talked a little bit about this, but just as a way of reminder, and then perhaps some additional information today, Paul's strategy was very sound because the Jewish people were the ones that knew the Old Testament very well. They had been raised up, grown up in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament was chapter one of this grand two-chapter story of God, and it was the preparation chapter. It gave us everything we would need to recognize the Messiah, to understand His purpose, to see that what He did was, in fact, exactly what they said He would do, that God said He would do through the prophets. And so, it makes sense, instead of going to the Gentiles, who have either agreed or Roman or, or pagan background of some sort and trying to start from scratch with the idea that they even needed a Messiah, that there was only one Messiah and there was only one God. I mean, these simple facts would have not been simple to the Gentile people. So Paul goes into the synagogue first because he figures rightly that the people that should most obviously come to know Jesus first and then, wait for it, be most passionate when they discover Christ as Messiah, ready to walk out of the synagogue on mission in their city, would be the Jewish people. So he goes to the Jewish people first. And he always, it says, like it does here, he goes and he persuades them. So this is different than just sharing the gospel to a bunch of Gentiles, bringing new news. It is a demonstration of, look what you already know, look what it already says, now look what actually happened. Hello, it's the Messiah. And so he does that. He also does it because there is a distinct sense from God during this time in history that God had chosen the Jewish people to be the recipients of that preparation chapter, and then for them to receive the Messiah within that context, and for that to demonstrate to the world God's great, gracious story. In fact, all along in the Old Testament, God says, I am doing this with this group of people so that the world might know me through them. So Paul says, look, when you carry the gospel, you carry it first to the Jewish people because it was for them, given to them, and through them, we, the Gentiles, would then see it, receive it, know it to be true. The Gentiles often would know the gospel to be true by its beautiful power in the Jewish people. So Paul goes, I'm going to go to the Jewish people first. But there is one additional piece we have not yet talked about that I think is important as Paul enters this story and goes to these people for us to understand what's about to happen. I'm going to turn to the book of Romans chapter 9 briefly. And I want to read something to you that Paul wrote. So Paul is writing the book of Romans. It's a letter to the church in Rome. And in Romans chapter 9 in verse 1, page 614, so just a few pages ahead if you're using one of our Bibles, page 614, Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Listen to what Paul says about the Jewish people. Listen to this. I am speaking the truth in Christ, Paul says. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I think he said that partly because of what he's about to say. Listen to this. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Man, isn't that crazy? You know what Paul just said? Paul just said, if I could have myself cut off from Christ and not to have eternal life so that all of my fleshly brothers, the Jewish people, who are God's people during this time, could know Jesus, I would do it. Can you imagine that? I I would lay my eternal life down if my Jewish brothers could have eternal life. Why was Paul writing this? Because there was a great rejection among a certain section of the Jewish people, the Jewish leadership and the power players, and Paul was part of that. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. These were his brothers. These were his people. This was his tribe, and, and they were rejecting the Messiah, and he was heartbroken over it and passionate for these people. When Paul writes, he writes, look, it is to them that all this belongs. It was for them that God gave the Old Testament and then the blessings and then the Messiah. And they are missing it. And I speak the truth, he says, uh, my, my, the Spirit of God in me attests, I would lay my soul down for these people if I could, if I could. How passionate is Paul for the people that are Jewish. Who lays their soul down for a group of people? Paul would if he could. That's how passionate he was. Do you think that when Paul entered the synagogues in each city, it was simply a strategy because he thought the gospel would move fast? No, 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 no. See, Paul walked in the city, and the first thing that was on his mind is what he wrote in the book of Romans. My people who the Messiah is for, who have every reason to believe, I cannot wait to get to them and share with them first. To them first comes the gospel. And then we will carry it to the Gentiles. So when Paul walked into a synagogue, I want you to know that every bit of his soul, every bit of his being was bent on the salvation of the Jewish people. Paul wanted them to know Jesus. He was passionate. So look at how the story unfolds in the book of Acts chapter 19 verse 8. So he's in the synagogue boldly reasoning and persuading them. Now remember, these are the same Jews that he had talked with briefly before leaving Ephesus and seemed to have a great response from. So I'm sure Paul is entering this story in Ephesus with great hope that the Jews that had said to him, please stay longer, Paul, would be ready to be receptive to the wonders of the gospel, right? So just set your expectations where Paul's are, right? Oh my gosh, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to see the Jews come to Jesus. I'm passionate about them. I want this for them. And then we're going to take the city of Ephesus. It's going to be awesome. Look what it says next. But when some became stubborn, oh, I don't like that word, and continued in unbelief. Now here's a key. Speaking evil of the way, that's the Christ followers, before the congregation, He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Huh. That just, I got to tell you, when I read that the first time, I kind of felt like, who's this guy? Who's this guy? This is not the Paul I know. Is this the Paul you know? I mean, Paul is one of the most stubborn human beings you'll ever bump into. He has never bowed down from a challenge. He has never stopped from anything. He has been stoned, beaten, imprisoned, condemned to death. And when he gets up on the other side, oftentimes he walks right back into the same town that just stoned him. I'm back. Not done with the gospel yet. Stone me again. It's okay, but I'm back. I mean, the Paul I know is not a Paul that lays down when things get a little rough, when people get a little stubborn, when people don't pay attention. Paul's not the guy that goes, I, I can't seem to convince you, I think I'm going to go. I mean, there are occasions where Paul was literally, it's says, you know, dragged out, whisked out of town by others. They're like, Paul, you don't understand, they're going to kill you. We need you somewhere else. But, but I, I'll tell you this, walking away like this from a synagogue, we saw it happen one time before. And remember what Paul did? He moved into a house next to the synagogue and then sat at the gates. He didn't actually leave. He's like, I'm going to pretend to leave. I'm going to sit here until you come to Jesus. But this one, it's very different. This one, it says he, he was in the synagogue with them and he was persuading them, and things were going very well early on, and then there were some of them that became very stubborn, and their unbelief continued, and they started speaking vehemently against the gospel to the congregation as a whole. So, what does Paul do? Paul gets up after three months in Ephesus. He gets the disciples together, those who believe in Jesus, that's the disciples, so these are mostly Jewish people, and he says to them, tomorrow we're not meeting at the synagogue anymore. I'm not going to come back here. I'm not going to keep trying to persuade these guys. I'm not going to keep spending time in the synagogue. I'm going to go to the hall of Tyrannus. We'll meet there and we'll, we'll continue this discussion there. And we will leave these stubborn, unbelieving Jewish people sitting in their synagogue. They can have what they are asking for. The hall of Tyrannus was a place of study in the city of Ephesus. We don't really know uh, historically why it was called Tyrannus. We believe it may have been because uh, of the person who owned it potentially, or it may have been a name given uh, to this hall for study. Uh, even the, the Greek uh, meaning of this doesn't really necessarily mean anything that would clue us in it. It means ty- tyrant or king. So perhaps the, the space where those who are learning to become great, we, we don't know. But what we do know about the Hall of Tyrannus was it was a space that was for rent or use during the day for teaching. So you could say, we don't know if it was paid or not, but you could say, we're going to go there when there's availability. Uh, in Greek documents from this historical time in Ephesus we find out that Paul was actually generally teaching in the hall of Tyrannus from the hours of 10 a.m. to t- uh, to 4 p.m. during the hottest time of the day and it was during that time that most of the people would take a long break from work to nap G- legitimately men check that one off as an american new way right I mean I think we should preach that in the church. Around eleven AM, we live in Florida, it is hot. You go home, you nap until two thirty-three, then head back to work at four, get off at five. I love that story. So that is the key point for you to take home today. Everything else is sort of irrelevant. No, I'm kidding. Uh, ignore that. That is not actually truth. Um, but they did take a nap during that time. So what we find out is the school probably would have been going on in the morning and in the afternoon in the cooler hours. So there was availability during the day and Paul would take that availability. He would rather be in the hall of Tyrannus during the heat of the day with the people than in the synagogue with the stubborn, unbelieving Jews who were publicly de- declaring things against the gospel. And so, He begins to teach in the hall of Tyrannus because He chooses to let go of His desired outcome, His passion point, and His ministry strategy because it is not going where it needs to go for the sake of the gospel. This is an incredible moment to me. Because it speaks deeply to the way I function so often in my context, and I think the way we all function. We have been bred in a cultural context that is outcome obsessed, right? I mean, that's just true of all of us in some way. Everything for us is about an outcome. You know, we read nice quotes about, it's not about the destination, but the journey, but we don't actually believe that junk, right? I mean, we hang it on our wall, and we're like, oh, it's so beautiful, existential. But at the end of the day, when the outcome doesn't turn out the way it's supposed to, we're ticked at somebody, mostly God right? So, so we are driven, we work, we push until we get an outcome, and if the outcome is not going to be what we think it is, most often we bail. We tell our kids, winning isn't everything, and then we stand on the sidelines and go, kick harder! <laughs> so everything, we're bred in this sequence of saying, man, you, you drive toward an outcome. So as it is, we live in a cultural context that's outcome-driven. Then on top of that, We step into the Christian context, and on mission we are called, hey, let's go live on mission, but then what we do is we often translate that into an outcome-driven sequence. We say, I'm going to go on mission, I'm going to enter into the spaces I'm most, what, passionate about, I'm going to be strategic in those spaces, I'm going to engage, and when we do and the outcome does not move in the journey of fruit-bearing, what do we tend to do? We get super discouraged, and most often, ironically, we either bail on mission in general, or we keep pushing into spaces that are really not going well because we're going to get it right, right? I'm going to bring that person to Jesus if it's the last thing I do on this planet. Or you're in a mission, and it's, you're working hard, and it's hard, and, 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 and you just you just push through. Or or we find ourselves deeply discouraged. We, 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 we stay the course, right? We stay the course, but we're just basically bummed out. A miserable mission, right? I mean, we've talked about this here. God wants us on mission, but not miserably, okay? Now, living on mission miserably is better than not living on mission. Okay, let me just say that. I'd rather have you on mission and a little miserable than just bailing on mission. But my my real uh, belief in what God has told us is that we can live on mission and find great freedom and great joy while on mission despite the hardness of mission, especially when it seems like it's bearing little fruit. We can actually live there. Now, that's a cool space, right? That's a cool space. We want to get there. And that's where we see Paul living a lot of the time, and we see it here. You see, so often in our outcome-based scenarios, the outcome of our missional life, our declaration of the gospel or our demonstration of the gospel often determines how discouraged or how at peace we are. If things are going well, we're at peace, and if things are not going well, well, this weight is on our shoulders about either this person or this group of people or this mission that I'm on, and it just doesn't seem to be going where it's supposed to be going. And so, we stick to it miserably, or we push hard into it to win, or we bail on mission total. Neither, oh, none of those scenarios are good. That's not what Paul does in this. See, for for every logical reason, Paul should have kept going in this story in the synagogue, right? He's passionate about the Jewish people. It's his strategy. He's done it before. His pattern is just to keep pushing in and pressing in until they come. And in this case, it seems like he moves on. It seems like he moves on to the hall of Tyrannus. Now, Now, because we know Paul, I can guarantee you, that there's something going on here that's not said in the text. How can I guarantee that? Because this is what always goes on in Paul's life, we've seen it. Is Paul receptive to the Holy Spirit? Always has been, seems like always is. See, his eyes are fixed on Jesus, his mind is set on things above, and what is Paul obsessed with? Paul is obsessed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is obsessed with the glory of Jesus Christ. That you will see in Paul's life all the time. Does Paul love people? Sure he does. Does Paul love the Jewish people more than most, right? Is Paul obsessed with the Jewish people or people in general or the response of people in general or what's going to happen to people in general? No, not obsessed with it. He's obsessed with the gospel. Paul has seen himself as a carrier of the gospel. That's what I do. At times I press in. At times I walk away. I'm receptive to the Spirit of God, and I do what I need to do. His proactive ministry is a strategy that he goes at. But we have seen Paul do this before, not in this context, but when the Spirit of God diverts him from his strategic proactive ministry, Paul is reactive to that, right? He reacts to the Spirit of God, and He moves wherever the Spirit tells Him despite His proactive plan. So there is a time in ministry to proactively engage. We ought to all be doing that in our workspaces, our home spaces, our neighborhood spaces, but then there is also a time clearly in Scripture where God has bigger things going on than we can see, and He pushes us into spaces where may, that may not make logical sense to the plan we have, but if we are receptive and we are free to trust God's story over our own, we will not land in either discouragement or stubbornness in a space we shouldn't be. We will move in and out of the missional plan in a reactive way, proactively on mission, reactive to the Holy Spirit, moving back and forth. See, that's exactly what happens here. Paul notices from what I can tell That the disciples that were beginning to understand the gospel were in the synagogue and the arguments that were going back and forth in public arenas with the stubborn unbelieving ones were beginning to become an irritation to the realities of discipling these guys. So instead of being obsessed with the people that Paul is so passionate about that he would let his soul go to hell so they can have God, he releases that obsession and says it is best for the movement of the gospel at this stage to be able to walk away from this environment and let those guys be and trust God with them. Now, if we're we're not careful... What we begin to do in stories like this is we begin to take this particular little moment in time and we we make it a a moment that's going to inform us about how to do ministry. So the first question you might be asking is, well, how do I know when I'm supposed to walk away from someone? That is not what this text is about. This is just one moment in Paul's life where he makes one decision different from other decisions because we know he's receptive to the Spirit. What we do see in this text is that Paul is proactively on mission and reactive to the Spirit, assessing at all times not where his passion points are driving him, where his desired outcomes are driving him, but where he sees the best space for the gospel to have its way. Sometimes that meant he stayed stubbornly in a space. Sometimes it meant he bailed on a very space that his whole soul would have been against, and that's what we're seeing here. So Paul walks out to the hall of Tyrannus and starts doing his work there. Look at what the text says next. This is this is a, a verse of such epic freedom. You ought to you ought to chew on this one, swallow it, and and let it sit for a long time. Listen to this, verse ten. This continued for. Two years. What continued for two years? Not being in the synagogue and being in the hall of Tyrannus, leaving those guys behind. Look at this. So that all the residents of Asia, that's incredible, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, wait for it, both Jews and Greeks. Greeks. What kind of a story would you want at the end of your time in Ephesus, if you were Paul? That all the residents of Asia have heard the gospel, the Jews and the Greeks alike, in the whole of Tyrannus. Would all of the people in Asia have heard the gospel, Jews and Greeks alike, in the synagogue in Ephesus? I don't know. And then tell us. I'm not here to guess. I'm not here. No, no, they wouldn't have. Maybe they would have. But here's what we do know because the text tells us. The fact that God allowed for the stubbornness to occur in the synagogue to cause Paul to say, despite my great love for you, I will not be discouraged by this outcome, but I will continue to move forward with the gospel, preaching the gospel to whomever comes Forcing him to walk out of that environment into the hall of Tyrannus uh, creates a story bigger than anything we could have imagined. Ephesus becomes the hub in all of Asia for the gospel to move out into that world until every resident in Asia had heard the gospel after two years. I don't know how that happened, but man, that is awesome. That is awesome. And here's what we begin to discover. As we walk into that world out there, If you think that every time you step in on mission, sharing the gospel verbally or demonstrating the gospel in action, that because God is with you and you're doing what God wants, it's going to go easy, you are out of your mind. You are out of your mind. We are fighting the darkness, folks. Paul describes it as a war zone that is trying to kill us. Does that sound pretty to you? And if you think every time you go out there that what you step into is going to bear fruit if you just hang with it long enough, you're out of your mind. I have been in ministry a long time, and many spaces and many people I have poured heart and soul into have abandoned the gospel and couldn't care less about Jesus, or chosen whatever way of life I was trying to say, that is not freedom. Many have also chosen, but you see, there's there, I, I I have I have no neat little package for you. When I did these five things, they came. When I did these, it didn't work. No, I did the same stuff every time. I don't have much, folks. I got the gospel. That's about all I have. Here's here's what I know. It's the same thing every time. Some respond. Some don't. Some respond at first, then don't. Some go up and down and up and down through a roller coaster, ten years long. Before there's any fruit, I, I, it's, the stories are all different. But here's what, I've come to, here's what I've come to realize as I've journeyed with men like Paul and as I've seen life unfold. Our calling is to enter into mission, to carry the gospel into environments, both through demonstration and declaration, and, and to step in. And at times, the outcomes will be miraculous and beautiful, and at times, the outcomes will be martyrdom for you and me. So crushing But this is where we get to live. And when it gets hard, when the stubbornness and unbelief persists, even when there was seeming movement, I mean, this is the perfect story. He goes to Ephesus the first time. The Jews ask Him to stay because they're so impressed with Him. He says, I can't. I'll come back. He comes back. What do you think is going to happen? And when He comes back, unbelief and stubbornness persists. It, it returns, and, and it's just unrelenting against the gospel. There will be times where you will be called of the Spirit to release and let go of a story. That's not what this story is about, right? This is not like if it's hard, bail. No, 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 Paul often didn't. What this is really about is this when you're in a story and it's hard, do not be discouraged. Do not be discouraged. Do not think for one second because you were bred in an outcome-driven culture that the outcome is, in fact, what should inform you about how things are going, because that's not true. We have already been informed about the outcome. You ready? We've been informed about the outcome. Jesus has come to make all things new, to redeem all stories, to make everything that's broken unbroken. That's the end game. It's done. It's finished. We are just participants in the progression of the story now. We get to move toward a guaranteed end, but on the way, the outcomes are going to be very, very different depending on the day. And instead of becoming discouraged by the realities of what you're seeing, you are called to trust the story of God more than you trust what you see in front of you to trust the story of God more than what you see in front of you. Sometimes that story will call you to stay the course, even if it's hard. Sometimes it'll call you to let go of something that you want so badly to see come to redemption. You'll have to be receptive to the Spirit on that one. But whichever story you're called into, what the text is saying is trust God's story, not yours and then you will be free. I tell my kids this all the time, honestly. Uh, My kids, you know, I've I've got eight of them. I love them to death, and they're sweet uh, every now and then. Um, But but here's the deal, right? They argue with Brooke and I. They argue with us. Can you believe that? They argue with us. We tell them stuff in grand wisdom, and they argue with us. Not like once in a while, all the time. And so I tell them, the reason you are arguing with me is not because I'm right or wrong. I may be right, I may be wrong, I don't even know yet. But the reason you're arguing with me is because you do not trust my heart, you do not trust my story. You do not trust that I know more than you. You see something in front of you that seems unfair or seems unjust or seems wrong in some way or seems off a bit. And you're taking the minuscule little bit of life experience you have and go, I know better than you. And while I'm saying this to my children, God's going, huh, that sounds awfully familiar. (laughs) And I go, I know, I know. We'll have that conversation later. Later right now I'm here. And I tell my kids all the time, do you know why mom and dad fight every day to make you honor us? Is it because we need your honor? I don't need my kids honor. I have an awesome wife. That's all I need. I'm good. (laughs) They can honor me, dishonor me. I couldn't care less. My life is still fine, but they need, they need to honor me because if they cannot learn to honor me, They will not learn to honor God. And what is honor? It is trusting God's story instead of our own story. It is trusting God's heart for the story when it doesn't seem like it's panning out the way our hearts want it to. Paul was clearly in a story where it was not panning out the way his passionate heart wanted it to. But he was not discouraged. He just reactively shaped the strategy, so that the gospel would keep moving. And the results? He trusted God, and God birthed the story bigger than he could have ever imagined. And so, every resident of Asia, the Jews and Greeks alike, came and heard the gospel in the hall of Tyrannus, stay the course, folks do not be discouraged. Trust the story of God, even when mission seems fruitless. It is not fruitless. It is just temporarily a part of the story that you cannot see the whole of yet. Trust the heart of God. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your incredible love for us and the freedom that You have given us to know that Your story is our freedom, that even when the outcomes before us are not panning out the way we would imagine them to, even when we are discouraged because we pour and pour and pour ourselves out, and yet it seems like the darkness wins. The stubborn unbelief continues in the hearts and minds of people, whether in choices they make or whether in the entire belief of Your rescue plan. Sometimes we pour out and it seems that there is nothing. Instead of being discouraged, God, and feeling heavy under the weight of darkness, would you whisper to our souls this weekend and remind us that you have a story bigger than we could have ever written, and though there are chapters of unbelief and stubbornness and darkness... Chapters where the enemy seems to be winning, that you are not concerned, you are not anxious, you are not trying to figure out how to undo it all like we are. You are absolute and resolute in the promises of redemption in the hearts of Your people. Give us courage. Envision vision, to walk into the mission we're called into, whether it's going incredibly well or struggling, and to be proactive in strategy and reactive in the dailiness so that we are always receptive to moving well into the spaces you want us to so we can carry the gospel forward every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.